0: From the magnificent Midwest, it's the Suzanne Venker Show, where men and women are equal in value, but wildly different by nature. Join us here every week when we challenge the culture's hugely flawed narratives about men, women, sex, and love. From coast to coast and from around the world, thank you for joining us. This program is brought to you in part by Let's Get Real, where forensic accountant Tiffany Couch uses her financial skills to shine the light on the real issues we all face every day. If you'd like to make decisions based on fact rather than on cultural pressure, go to life.com, a place where you can find tools to improve your communication skills and increase your connection to humanity. That's life.com. Today on the show, we're going to talk about how to raise countercultural kids. But first, two quick announcements. If you have not become a Patreon supporter, now is the time to do so. As always, there are four very economical levels, and those who sign up now at the $20 level receive a signed copy of the Alpha Females Guide to Men in Marriage. This offer lasts through the end of the year and then goes away, so act now if this is something that interests you. Second, I'm now also offering 15% off two of my coaching packages, the premarital or newly married option which highlights the four main potential stressors of every marriage and how to resolve those now so they don't become a problem later. And my new life coaching for college women option in which I help young women map out a life that actually works and that offers the best chance at true happiness. The coupon code for each of these packages, again, that's the premarital option and the life coaching for college women option is capital XMAS for Christmas. I hope we knew what that was. X-M-A-S. This offer also continues through the end of the year. Just go to SuzanneBanker.com slash coaching, and you will find those options at the bottom. And now on with the show. Okay, guys. So now that my husband and I are almost empty nesters, which I absolutely cannot believe... I was thinking back on all the ways that we raised our kids differently from, I guess, the norm, right? Or whatever the modern way of parenting is. Not to say that we are um, complete opposite of that, but definitely opposite enough to where it was sort of obvious, (laughs) at least to my kids, our kids, Um, I feel like every step of the way we took some sort of heat for parenting differently than the way other people did beginning with our baby's sleep schedules. I remember that to my staying home with them, which wasn't um, it's not, it wasn't unpopular entirely, but it was certainly not the norm to the shows. We'd let them watch to um, talking about money and sex and the differences between boys and girls. I can't believe that I have to say that this is countercultural, but unfortunately that's what it's come to. Um, And, and there, you know, there was never any other way for us to parent except the way that we, that he and I believed strongly was the right way to do it. And we are not easily influenced by whatever is going on in the culture. So, the, the you know, it's a requirement for sure, if you're going to do this, that you are able to withstand, you know, looks or comments. That's one thing um that you can live differently than the people around you that's another thing and because we are very we're both very strong about living true to ourselves and what we want and we're not really you know concerned with what other people think it wasn't as difficult for us as it might be for someone else but at the end of the day we are living in very different times as everyone listening to this program knows that's why you're here and if you don't have some sort of structure in place and hopefully guidance to parent differently or do anything differently than the norm than the culture tells you it's very very difficult I mean I'm I'm not gonna lie it's not you know it's human nature to want to go along with what people are doing you don't want to stand out from the crowd um, but unfortunately I I personally believe while I would have done this in any era desperate times call for desperate measures and at this point I just feel like you there's just no way to succeed at parenting if you don't do it opposite than the way the culture is doing it today. That's, that's where we are. So I'm going to go through the different ways that um, I could think of in which he and I were sort of doing things opposite of the way what you probably, if I don't know, it depends on what stage you're in. I don't know if you've already raised kids. If you're listening to this, if you're just about to, if you're in the middle of it, hopefully this will help, but you will undoubtedly recognize how these, um, how the style was different from from the norm. Okay, so if if you guys have followed this podcast pretty faithfully, or and even if you haven't, you can go back and look at previous episodes and look for the ones. There's two of them I've done with a psychoanalyst named Erica Comasar, and I, I love Erica Comasar. It's not a secret. She is so unusual because she is willing to talk about the significance of the early years in parenting from birth to age three or four, and why being there in those years, especially for mothers and how that differs from fathers is so critical. And she does it in a way that is very, I don't know, what's the word palatable. You know, it's just, um, you know, she's completely different from me. You know, I'm, I'm much more, um, polemic, I guess. And she's just laying out the facts and she has a very soft, kind way of doing it. And that's her style and it, and it it works. So I'm, I'm very impressed with her. I respect her a great deal. So go back and see if you can find those. I'm not sure exactly what the titles are. Um, one has to do with mother's absence from the home and the other has to do with, um, um, emotionally unavailable mothers. I think those are the two titles if you're scrolling through. Okay. So I'm bringing her up because those early years, one of the things that women have heard, women and men have heard, Americans, people have heard for the past 20, 30 years is this bogus idea of quality time. The idea is supposed to be that you can be apart from your babies and toddlers, because we're really talking, I mean, it actually, it's important all the way up. I'm going to focus on just the early years for a moment for a specific reason, but it actually applies to birth to 18. But the idea of quality time, a completely bogus term, is the idea that if you are gone, you know, 40, 50, 60 hours a week for your job, that you can make up the hours that you were not with your children, if you make that one or two hours really, really count. And the very first book that I ever wrote, which today is called "The Two Income Trap," it it actually was re released recently under a different title. Um, this, uh, let's see, "The Two Income Trap." In that book, I talk about um, how you know why that term is is, is so bogus. And at the time that I was writing it, this was 20 years ago when I first wrote it, it was all the rage. I mean, I, the amount of research I did for that book is just off the charts. I read every single thing I could get my hands on about motherhood and the early years. And at the time, there was this, they called it the mommy wars. And it was between, you know, supposed, supposedly between stay-at-home moms and working moms, although I think that so much of that was media-driven just to conjure a fight, you know, in order to have something to talk about on, on media and get people riled up. But at any rate, so, so, so it was, there was no shortage whatsoever of, um, articles and books to read that honestly, mostly were written by working mothers, hardcore working mothers, because obviously stay at home moms, um, don't typically get on their, uh, soapbox, present company excluded, uh, and so they're not writing books, right? They're, they're doing the, they're doing the work, um, as was I, but I would use those moments when my first child, well, actually I only wrote that book when I had one child and then I disappeared after I, for about five years and just blogged a little bit when I had my second, cause there's no way to get anything done when you have two, but I would use every moment that my baby was sleeping to be on my soapbox, <laughs> um, just because that's who I am. But at any rate, the most people don't do that. So the mo- majority of the material that I was reading was from were from these working mothers who were literally exactly like I just described. They were gone 40, 50, 60 hours from their children, their babies. They had nannies, they were in daycare, and they spent the time justifying or explaining why quality time is a thing, right? That they could come home. And I, I remember actual statements from women who or mothers who would talk about how that one hour making that one hour before the child goes to bed really, really count. (laughs) And I was just in awe of the whole thing. So um, at any rate, I don't think we hear so much about that whole quality time anymore, but we certainly did for a long, long time and it stuck. It really stuck. I think people think that um, it's no longer even questioned whether or not a mother needs to be there in the early years which was why Erica Komisar's book, Being There, that came out a few years ago, I was so excited to, to, to read that. I know that was out there because nobody discusses it anymore. You know, I think back when I wrote that book 20 years ago, it was very much in the media. Like I said, it was a discussion. It was a debate all the time. And now it's just inculcated in the culture where you just don't even discuss it. So that if someone says they just had a baby and they put the baby in daycare, you know, 8, 10 hours a day, all week, no one even bats an eyelash. But back then, people were still batting eyelashes, hence the debates. But today, people say it like they say they're getting divorced. You know, divorce and daycare used to be um, something that required um, a response and attention um, and analysis, but it no longer does. It's just a thing, it's just a thing that's done. And the reason I'm mentioning all this is because. So much of raising countercultural kids or raising kids at all, quite honestly, begins in those early years with building a bond. And the bond is not something that can happen in an hour a day. It's something that happens as a result of putting in the time, the quantity, it's the complete opposite of quality, putting in the time, the hours that, is, that are needed to establish that bond in the early years. There's just so much that goes on in the first three years that is intangible and very hard to put on paper, which is why it gets overlooked, why it's very easy to, to overlook it. People want to talk often when you read about this stuff, they want to talk about it with respect to what outcomes are what the outcomes are, um, you know, how well, how well my child does in school, um, whether or not she gets a job later in life. And and these things are supposed to sort of prove whether or not your home matters in those early years. But in fact, it doesn't at all because what matters in those early years is the emotional development. And that's much harder to quantify. You can't say getting a degree or, um, a job has anything to do with your emotional, um, makeup. So, so, That's why I think this topic was always so difficult to debate in the media, for sure, because you don't have enough time. You only get these three minute, you know, uh, segments when you have to give a soundbite or two, which is not enough to discuss what goes on in those early years. So building that bond. um, And even if you miss the first year, you know, there's always options later to cut back or stop working to give children the time that they need so that you can establish that bond with them, with them. And the reason why this is so important is because as you go along in the subsequent 18 years, you want to be able to draw upon that early bond. If you want to be heard, if you want to be respected, if you want to um, have your children absorb your um, guidance and or even discipline we're going to talk about that too. So so that's sort of step 1. That's the first thing I thought of was just being there in those early years establishes the foundation for later discipline and later connection and and growth with your children. And so that alone right there was the first countercultural thing I could think of that we did. And certainly we were not alone. In fact, I This one isn't as counterculture as some of the things I'm going to talk about, because the truth is there are more people who do that than not. And I think that's really important to understand because the message you get from the media is that pretty much there's no such thing as staying home anymore. And that's true in a technical sense. There's only about a quarter, about 25% of married mothers. Now we're talking about married mothers now, not single mothers. That's a different conversation. But for married mothers, um, only about a quarter are not employed throughout the duration of those years at home, sort of like it was for our mothers and grandmothers. Um, the vast, and then another quarter, a little more than a quarter actually, are what you'd call full-time working mothers where their kids are with a nanny or in daycare. But the vast majority in the middle are part-timers who move in and out of the workforce as the needs of their children change, that would be me, for example. So maybe they're home for X amount of years and then they're not, maybe they work part-time one year and then not at all another year. I've only begun myself working really full-time in the last two years and I'm almost an empty nester. So there's a lot There's That's a huge group that gets absolutely no acknowledgement in the media. All of which is to say, it's not quite as countercultural to be home in the early years as you might think. Okay. That was the first one. Um, I also was thinking back about those years. And 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 what came to mind is how I was, uh, kids were on a very strict sleep schedule. And so my husband and I, our lives were for those years, I want to say the first four years, because that's really, children are napping. And of course, it depends on how many you have, we have two, um, for the first four years of parent, our parenting life, maybe five, cause we had two, so five or six years, I guess our lives were sort of, our adult lives were orchestrated around the children's sleep schedules. And so we would be out, let's say we were, we wanted to go to a, an event of some sort and it involved the children. We would bring them for X amount of time and then leave in order to stay on that schedule. And we would get a lot of flack for that. Um, And the reason why we did that is not because we didn't want to stay and continue having fun. Obviously we did, but we sacrificed it so that the kids got the sleep that they needed. Actually for selfish reasons. I mean, definitely because I'm a big health nut and I believe hugely in sleep and good food and all of that for our health, but physical and mental health, but also because keeping them on a schedule was much, much easier for us as parents to to be able to parent because if they get the sleep they need and every parent knows, I don't mean this was, we did this perfectly across the board. Every parent knows that when a when a child that age is not sleeping, it is absolute mayhem. I mean, it's chaos. They are out of control of themselves. You can't discipline them when they're tired, for example, because they're not in control of their bodies. Their bodies are not going to react to your discipline I've seen, I I remember seeing this a lot with, you know, other friends or contemporaries who weren't so consistent or weren't at all consistent with the sleep schedules and they were unable to discipline and I'd watch it and I'd want to scream, he just needs to go to sleep. And then you can discipline him properly. He'll respond, but you cannot expect him to listen and respond. If he's sleep deprived, it just doesn't work. So a lot of that sleep, uh, I, I, I called myself sort of a sleep Nazi and I took a lot of flack for it, but it worked. I'm I'm here to tell you it worked. So that's an example of something where, yeah, you're going to take a lot of shit from people um, for doing it that way. And you're not going to have as much fun because you're going to cut out of a party early, but it's absolutely worth it. Um, because it has a domino effect when you later go to, um, as I say, attempt to discipline, which is an integral part of parenting and has to be done. Um, okay. And then speaking of discipline, I would say another way that we were very countercultural is that we never thought of our children still don't, but it's sort of changing now because they're becoming adults. So eventually it does change. We never thought of them as our friend. We never were concerned with what, you know, whether or not they liked us per se, It was what they needed. And that is also very countercultural today because I'm sure, again, people listening know that over the last 20 years, that has been a huge theme in parenting is that parents just don't want to discipline their kids because they want them to like them or they want to be their friend. And you see that message in the media constantly. And so the idea of old school discipline is definitely out and being your kid's friend is in. And I'm here to tell you that depending on what type of old school discipline you're talking about, it, it neither one actually works. If you're talking about old school, really old school, like in my parents' day where it was sort of children are meant to be seen but not heard kind of thing, definitely not that kind of old school discipline. But there is a huge middle ground between that um, and today's permissiveness and being your kid's friend, which is just an utter disaster for, for everybody. And that middle ground um, has to do with being authoritative, right? Rather than aggressive and domineering, but just letting your children know that they are safe because they're with parents who are in control of them and their surroundings. Now, this is when they're younger. This changes, of course, when they become teenagers, but when they're younger a lot of parents don't realize that what kids actually crave is to to be safe. And they want those boundaries and they want the discipline and they want the rules. And that's what has not gotten across to a lot of parents in the last 20 or 30 years. Because the idea was that, you know, parents were too strict in the past and that didn't work. So we're going to go extreme in the other direction and just sort of be their friends and let them, you know, have all this latitude, and it it just doesn't work. Kids are not meant to have latitude when they're young. They're they're they crave you to. They love it when you say no. They know that they are safe. That they don't want to make decisions. They're too young to make them, right? And that comes later. You know, it's it's a it's a gradual thing that you over time there's different stages of development for children and, and you have to recognize which stage requires which kind of parenting. So that's another thing that I thought of is just that the, the idea of being your kid's friend was not something we, we entertained at all. Um, <laughs> okay. Now I'm, I'm laughing a little bit cause I'm looking at this next one. I'm imagining my kids listening to me now. Um, Another thing we did that we, I still do get flack today, even from my kids. Um, But that's because now that they look back, they're kind of at the stage where they don't, they think it's funny, but I I don't, I don't care what they say. They actually loved it back then is that we raised them with very old school TV. So Little House on the Prairie, The Waltons, classic films, um, you know, um, material of substance. And, and there just isn't, there's so little to nothing of substance today in the media that you have to dig back to get it. That was my theory then. It's kind of, it's actually worse today than it was when I, when they were younger, but those shows are timeless. You know, they tell stories and they impart values that literally do not ever change. That's why I had, first of all, I like watching them. So I wasn't suffering sitting there. Um, In fact, I still watch the Waltons today. Especially today, now that things have gone off the rails in our country, I'm like just just take me back to a place where people you know were normal and had common sense and all of that so so yeah, they were raised on these shows that their friends didn't know what that was. they'd come in if they, it was accidentally on, their kids would come in, their friends would come in sorry, and they'd say what what is that you know and actually there was a there was a time where the kids were really proud of it and didn't know any they didn't know any different. they thought everybody watched that. Um, but it wasn't until they really became teenagers that they realized, mm, no, their friends had no idea what that stuff was. And I think at that point, they became a little embarrassed about it, which I don't care. It, it's totally normal for them to be embarrassed when they're teenagers, right? Um, that's just, yeah, that's just normal. So so now they're kind of over and they're not interested in, in the older stuff anymore because of their ages. But for many, many years, that's what they were raised on. And it was extremely helpful, because essentially what they were watching when they were exposed to media was support for the way we were doing things. So even though our lives are modernized, um, and even though we may have more money, let's say, than you see on Little House on the Prairie, or even the Waltons, none of that really mattered, because the values that we were imparting as parents were very, very similar to what they were seeing on TV. That's hugely helpful, Because so many kids, as you know, are raised on this trash that they're seeing that's complete opposite of probably the way their parents do things. And it's very, uh, what's the word? Influential. It's very influential. Media is so impactful. It's so powerful. And you have to, you have to, have to, have to, have to watch what they take in and monitor that, which I did. Most of it fell to me because I we had a traditional household. My husband was, you know, working Monday through Friday. I was home. Um, and to the extent that I worked, it was, you know, I was still the main person at home always through the week. So I was kind of in charge of that. And the reality is, yeah, I was really, re- that went on for years. Um, now, keep in mind, this was pre-phone era and pre-social media for the first I want to say 12 years of both of our kids' life, phones and social media were a non-issue. And I thank God that that was the case. Now that I see what I see, I, you know, I think that's a whole nother, probably a whole nother show with maybe a guest because that's, yeah, that's a big topic. So just keep in mind, I didn't have to fight against that for the first, you know, 12 years of their lives. So that's, a big deal. But I, I I definitely still had to monitor it because you still had junk on TV. And you still had, I don't, I don't it all kind of runs together now. I can't remember. You had, I mean, there were video games. um You know, just all of it, all of it has to be monitored. And if you're not physically there, you're not going to be able to monitor it. Which is not to say if you are there, that all parents who are physically there do monitor it. Um, it's just to say that if you're not there at all, you definitely can't monitor monitor it. And then if you are there, it's so easy to use all of that as a babysitter, and you have to be able to regulate that and attempt to live at least somewhat as though that wasn't the case, as though that wasn't, as though the media in this form that we have today isn't there, and that's extremely difficult, especially for parents of younger children now. And I do feel for them. And like I said, that's a whole nother conversation that I'm not going to get into now. But anyway, so media and how to combat that. That's another countercultural way of raising your kids is just simply less media. It's never going to be no media because we're so far. We're so far into it. There's no, in my opinion, way to have no media, you know, and plus I'm not extreme person at all. I'm, I'm I'm big on moderation and learning how to live within reason with what we've got going on today. So that's a huge countercultural parenting issue is, is media. Um, Another one is using every opportunity that you have and that you see to counteract social messaging. So this could be watching TV together or when they're watching and you're walking through and you see something said on, TV that you're like, what? You know, and, and don't just walk out of the room and just let that go on day in and day out. Stop, pause the TV, have a conversation about it. Now, once again, if I heard my daughter listening to the, if my daughter were listening to this right now, she'd be like, okay, but don't do it the way my mom did it because it was constant. <laughs> and that's true. But, but keep in mind, keep in mind what I do workwise like this is what i do so much of what i do so i am definitely over the top on that so i'm not suggesting that anybody needs to do that at all i'm simply suggesting to not be the opposite of that where you just sort of walk through and don't address it at all you can have some sort of happy medium between my being so attentive to that and then not being attentive attentive at all so when you see or you read something that you know they are being exposed to and this is especially true not just with TV and media, but in their schools, in their schools. In fact, maybe that's even bigger than media. I don't know. It's a toss up, but either which way, you've got to stop and counteract that messaging because you can almost guarantee that where we are today is so bad on this front because it's all progressive left-leaning, left-leaning crap that you you cannot afford to not counteract it Daily. I mean weekly for sure that's how much they're getting all the time and again start young that's why I opened this conversation by talking about the early years the more you've established that bond and I don't even just mean from birth to age 3 but even in the earlier years from you know 4 to 10 the more you've established a bond where they trust you and respect you and love well of course they love you no matter what but trust and respect you, you you the more chance that they will listen to you when you when you when you do counteract those social, those social messages now that's not to say that they're not going to go through um a rebellious period they will but you've got to get it in their heads first so they know and have had exposure to the other side of the equation and then they'll figure it all out down the road you don't you just don't want to go through the whole parenting experience never having done that because then even if they go whatever direction they're going to go, you know that at least you did all you could. Let's put it that way. So all of which is to say, just don't be silent and um, so into your own life that you're not paying attention to all of this. That's all I'm saying. And that includes news stories, by the way, um, the movies you see together. You know, there's a lot of movies. (laughs) Don't think that just because it's Disney, it's harmless. There's a lot of movies you can watch that send very specific messages to your kids And you got to pay attention to what those messages are, especially even if they're subliminal. Because again, you only have them for so long. And so you want to take that opportunity to um, tell them the truth if what they're being fed is, is not true. When you got married, things were perfect. You were both in love and life was good. Then somewhere along the line, everything changed. She changed, or maybe he did. Either which way, now your relationship feels, well... I coach husbands and wives who feel lonely, disrespected, or misunderstood in their relationship. So many women today are desperate for their husbands to step up to the plate, to make a decision and to stick to it, to lead rather than to follow. Ladies, you have the power to make it happen. Men respond best to women who are grounded in their feminine core. As for husbands, so many of them want their wives to stop nagging and to just trust them, to smile more and to complain less, to look at them the way they did when they were first dating. Men, you have the power to make it happen. Women respond best to men who are grounded in their masculine core. The secret to lasting love rests in the masculine feminine dance. Once you master it, your relationship will no longer be difficult. You'll be moving with the biological tide rather than against it. And that makes marriage smooth sailing. If you're struggling in your relationship, if you feel frustrated or alone, I can help. Just go to SuzanneBanker.com, that's S-U-Z-A-N-N-E-V-E-N-K-E-R.com, and click on the coaching button at the top. Don't wait another minute to acquire the mindset you need to find love and to sustain it it's so much easier than you think. That's Uh Okay. Three more. We did not jump on the let's travel all over the country to play sports idea, which has been going on for what, I don't know, at least 10 years. Um, and of course that's, that's a complicated issue. Again, maybe needing its own segment, but um, you know, we, we went, my, our son played hockey for quite some time until he was injured. And then that was the end of that. But for there were a number of years there. And my husband, by the way, is obsessed with hockey, loves hockey. It was a bonding thing for him and our son. And it was great. Um, But we made a decision together that we were never going to go to that top tier where you literally travel all over the place and spend all your money doing it, which we just thought was absolute insanity. And so I guess in retrospect, it was kind of good that Our son was injured because um, it kind of sent him in a different direction, which I'm not going to get into now, but a very positive direction too. So, so it's all good. But all my point is just that back when we were dealing with that, um, that was really difficult because everybody around us was doing the traveling. And so to not do it is to stand out, you know, and standing out again, it's not fun. You know, it's hard. Um, It's hard. I I mean, it's hard, Um, but so glad we did. Okay. And then um, mm, this one's big money and sex. (laughs) Um, uh, Let's see. I, I would say to some degree, well, to a large degree, every era, of parents, I believe, every generation of parents has had difficulty teaching their kids about money and sex. I mean, it, it's just, there's such big subjects and very difficult for parents to deal with. I know that. And that's not generational. What is generational, with specific to sex now, we'll come back to money, is that it used to be very common up until recently, to teach your children Either um, overtly or even more subtly, that there's a difference between male and female, that there's boys and there's girls. And here's what that means today, and here's what that will mean for your life down the road. And I would say, of all the countercultural parenting that we did, This was probably the biggest. Um, We are not afraid to talk to our children about the fact that their lives are going to look very different because one is boy and one is male and one is female. One is going to be a man and going to be a woman on their way now to that. They're a young man and a young woman. Um, And that that will require different life plans, depending, of course, on what you want. So this is a really big deal. This is probably the biggest of of everything I'm talking about right now because it's so topical and it's just, it's, we're getting deeper and deeper into this idea that there's no differences between men and women. So we're supposed to teach our children that they're basically going to have the same lives because that's how we prove our equality or whatever. I'll give you an example of a client I have right now, a coaching client and she, there's nothing unusual about her she's she's the norm from what i can tell they're all millennials that i work with no one talked to the daughters about how their lives would look different presumably from the man they would marry so for example first of all marriage was not considered this is and i'm generalizing here obviously there are parents who don't do it this way but the trend let's let's call it that the trend the norm is to raise boys and girls as though they are the same. Th- that means that there is no recognition for the fact that girls will eventually be the one that has ba- have babies, but boys will not. And that means that your life's trajectory is going to look very different from a man's. No one tells them that. They also don't talk about, and there's different different ways to account for that. There's, there's A, the biological clock. In other words, that a boy can postpone marriage longer than a girl, if he wants, much more easily. Um, two, that as a woman, you are going to want the chances of your wanting to be out of the workforce at some point of time to take care of your baby is huge, huge. How do you plan in advance for that? How do you plan a life for that? How? What kind of decisions can you make prior to that day coming that will allow you to do that? Instead, there is just a moratorium on the subject. It's just silence. People are afraid. The culture has caused parents to be afraid of saying to a daughter, look, what do you want, right? What do you want your life to look like? If she says, if you happen to have a daughter who says, Not when she's 16, because you're, you know, chances of you changing your mind are pretty great. But let's say she's 20 or she's 21, 22. I want to be um, a trial lawyer. I want to be a brain surgeon. You know, if she says anything that's of a really big nature where she's choosing a career path that is literally all consuming and she does not want children, not much to say there. Fine. Great. Go for it the vast majority of daughters are not going to say that they're probably going to say something along the lines of, I really want to have a good marriage and I want a good family. And I want to have X amount of children, 2.5, three, four, whatever. Um, and I'd also like to have some, some form of professional life at some point. Now that's looking again, that's looking at their life on the whole, right? From 20 to 80, let's say, instead of just 20 to 30. because too many daughters right now are taught to just think in terms of the here and the now, as though this desire or interest for this big life in this career is going to be is going to consume your, your entire life. There's no discussion of the long term. So that's why they end up getting themselves into a pickle down the road. So going back to this coaching client, I was explaining, no one said to her who, by the way, this particular client was raised in a um, what she calls a fancy family. (laughs) So a wealthy family. And she um, became used to a very certain standard of living, because her parents essentially gave her everything, gave her the best of everything. And they, that's, that's just how they chose to do it. And what they didn't do is twofold. Number one, they never taught her about, they never said anything about money and taught her about money. So that really set her back. That's one thing. But also they never said to her, Hey, look, at some point you're going to want to have children. Well, she did want to have children, by the way, she has three children. Um, At some point you're going to have children and your priorities are going to change. So let's figure out a path that works with that reality rather than this singular path. That's going to get you, um, on a road that down the road, you're going to be stuck, which is somewhat of what happened because of that lack of parental guidance. The decisions that young people make ultimately end up not serving them well down the road. Why? Because parents were not going to raise their children in a countercultural fashion. In fact, it's the parents who do raise their children in countercultural fashion who end up in my opinion winning in the end because they got the information that they needed that the culture and the media wasn't going to tell them in order to map out lives that work. And this is true with sex, with money, with marriage, um All, I mean, everything outside of just the conversation about education and career, you know, so much about all you ever hear is education, career, education, career, but you've got to fit in these other conversations around that if you want to map out a life that works. So, um, I don't know if I brought this, so I'm just going to, uh, move over to the money conversation real quick. Um, I've been following Dave Ramsey for this entire year and he has a podcast, Well, it's a radio show, but it's also a podcast that's several hours a day, and there's tons of call-ins all the time. That's why I like it. It's just a call-in show, and it's very fascinating. And his whole shtick, if you will, is to teach people how not to be in debt and how to live with debt and how to organize and budget their money. And everything he says is commonsensical from way back when. It's completely countercultural for today because his main message is that debt sucks, you know, that debt's bad but debt is quote unquote normal. He uses the word normal all the time um, because that's what people do. They go into debt for everything to buy a car, to go to school. He, He does understand you have to have a mortgage when you buy a home, which is good, but everything outside of that borrowing and being in debt, whether it's credit cards or school or cars or whatever, or consumer debt in general is considered normal when in fact, it's actually keeps you from moving ahead financially and becoming wealthy. So that's his message. Um, What made me think of that? Oh, so many of the call-ins that he gets are people who are living their lives specifically opposite of that and coming out ahead on the other side. So that's an example of how countercultural thinking is actually a win-win. He actually, uh, he ends up getting into a lot of marital and relationship problems because as you know, that's very much connected with money, money and marriage. And so he gets a lot of couples, for example, who call in and they're on a, and they marry, They I, I noticed a common theme, they marry younger rather than later, and they're on track financially, as opposed to being in debt up to their eyeballs. Or they are in debt up to their eyeballs, and they're slowly working their way out, but they're working as a team with their, with their spouse. All of which is to say, these people who are calling in there are living very differently from your typical millennial who takes on all this debt and gets married later in life and ends up in this bad place and these other people because they are doing it so counterculturally, don't end up in that same place that's why i'm mentioning it so it's so similar to my message his is really about money mine's about marriage and relationships but they go together and that if you um live opposite of the way most people around you do you're gonna you're gonna win in the end um and that's so that's basically the message of this podcast um and the last thing i wanted to mention was college um Going back to what I was just saying about Dave Ramsey, they, they one of the things that they talk about is helping people go through college debt free or relatively debt free. And that's another example of something that we've done in that um, you know there there are basically two ways to go through college relatively debt free. That is, if your parents are able to pay for it, which is great. Or if not, if you're in the category that your parents can't cover it or can't cover half of it or some of it or whatever, that you choose a college that um, you can afford, right? But that's not encouraged or talked about. You're supposed to go to the biggest, the best college you can find, regardless of what it costs, as though that, as though getting a degree from that particular university is of extreme value to the family and that it's going to make your life, right? I don't subscribe to that. Um, and so the idea that you have to go to a specific college to get us to get your degree and pay out the wazoo for it and go into debt for it, I would never do if we were in that boat. You know, if um, if we had kids who literally had no way of if we had absolutely nothing to offer them on the college front, we would steer them toward a local college or not, excuse me, not a local, but a state school and then um, get, and then you would teach them early on about, about um, scholarships and encourage, you know, good grades or whatever, you know, you could, there are things you would do in advance knowing that coming up that um, could help offset that as opposed to just, Oh yeah, you know, just, just take on as much debt as you need. You'll pay it off. You'll get a good job or whatever. And this is especially a problem when you're teaching your daughters this message because (laughs) Here's another, talk about countercultural. This is a really taboo, controversial thing to say, but I don't care, it's true. And that is that the vast majority of women, the vast majority who start out on a track as though they're like men, where the sky's the limit and they're gonna take on all this debt and they're gonna have these big jobs and they're gonna make all this money. The vast majority of them hit a point in their life where they no longer want that. This isn't just my experience in working with them. The data shows this. They hit a point. And by the way, this is the real reason why that gender gap exists. And you'll never hear about this in the media. Because women and men are different. You're you're going to come, the chances of your getting to a point in your life where living that linear existence of just producing, producing, and breadwinning. Um, is going to sort of run its course and you're going to want something different is so astronomically high that it makes no sense to raise your daughters to assume that's not going to be the case. If it ends up being the case, which is a minority, okay, but why plan for it? Plan for what you know will likely happen. So part of that is choosing a college that you can afford so that you don't end up in debt up to your eyeballs and then having to stay employed 24-7 365 days a year in order to pay that off when you really don't even want to be working that much. Maybe you don't want to work at all for an X amount of time, or maybe you want to work part time, but you want a life that actually doesn't cause you to have to just chase after the dollars so you can pay off something that you shouldn't have done to begin with. So that's another big one is this idea of of debt. College debt is a huge countercultural message. Um, And I know, even though that's not a big aspect of, the way my husband and I, I mean, it's one thing, but it's not a huge thing. Um, I would say probably what's bigger for us on the countercultural front when it comes to money is that we talk to our kids about money and tell them they know everything. You know, they hear us talking about it. We have budget meetings. We, um, they were, they're required to get jobs. They both have been working since they were 16. Um, um, just You know, instead of just walking through and not teaching them about it, we we did. um, And we were comfortable with that. So that's probably more the way we taught counterculture than the college per se. Um, But at any rate, I thought of that just with respect to the Dave Ramsey thing, because so much of what he's teaching is totally countercultural and it is working. And that's very similar to my message. So all of which is to say, um, um, the more you raise your children in a counter-cultural fashion, the more successful they will be. It doesn't mean, it, it isn't that it's 100% foolproof so much as you've done your job, you've counteracted all that junk that's coming at them and the rest is up to them, right? The rest is up to them. But I, I truly believe that parental influence is much bigger than people realize. It's true that the culture is hugely influential and it, and it can actually undermine parenting. I, I do believe that. And it does for X amount of years when they're young. Um, I mean, excuse me, when they're like teenagers and in college. But eventually, if you're modeling something different and you've taught them differently all along, it will come back. It will be incorporated into their thinking, even if they temporarily check out. So that's the message of today's podcast, raise countercultural kids. And that ends this hour of the Suzanne Banker show. Don't forget to tune in next week when I will be back again with a new subject that I am um, not going to tell you about. You just have to come back and see. Thanks for listening, everyone. Have a great week.